Welcome to another episode of Columbine and them and you and me and everybody. Today, we'll listen to the story of Marla Faust. My name is Marla Faust, and I was a sophomore at Columbine High School when the shooting occurred. It was friends with Ellen and acquaintances with Eric, the shooters. Um, Ellen I knew, um, hung out in friend group with him. Eric just kind of saw in the same social group, but didn't interact a lot with him. And then during the shooting, I lost a couple friends, a couple schoolmates. Daniel Mauser, shy, quiet kid. Yeah, we'd grown up together. We were in chess club together. And a, a girl, Rachel, was in my photography class, and I was the photography assistant. So um, I got to know them when I would help them out. Either myself or the teacher had to be in the dark room at all times when students were, so I would be in there with a lot of them. I mean, I grew up in the suburbs of, of Denver. It was a pretty typical life. Mom, dad, brother, uh, nothing bad happened. You know, you grew up, you played a sport, you went to school. I did get a little bit punk, a little bit gothic when I hit high school because it was a very confusing time and I'm glad there's no pictures of it. It's pretty bad. Uh, I was really good in school um, when I cared. I was straight A's. And you know, like I wasn't not the most popular, but I wasn't least popular. Got along with people, like people, I was in choir, uh, basketball, that sort of thing. You could do anything you wanted to do, be anyone you wanted to be in the 90s, you know. Uh, real estate was great, you know, college was always an option. So yeah, the 90s were, were fun, they were good. You knew about mental issues because TV shows that you watched after school were beginning to talk a little bit about it, um, but in a, a light hearted way but gun violence wasn't a thing we weren't concerned about any of that we were more concerned about fitting in being part of that punk group you know i got bullied but not not a lot honestly i think i got bullied more in sixth grade um than i did in high school when i started wearing the trench coat my freshman year i got a couple people that would run by and say you know sing worshiper something like that but really i didn't see or experience a lot of bullying we never called ourselves trench coat mafia. No. And it's funny, that phrase, the first time we heard that phrase was after the shooting. We were cool people. We weren't troublemakers. We weren't Satan worshippers. The guys would play a lot of video games, but we would just go to someone's house and chill. And, you know, I know it's not big, scary goth like people think. We were kind of the Littleton version, I guess. But we didn't pick fights with anyone. And, we weren't big and scary. And, you know, for the most part, we had good grades. A couple of them were dropouts, and they would hang out with us. I'd sit there because I didn't fit anywhere. And because they accepted me, I was going for shock value, rebelling. I super rebelled against my parents and my religion. It was an acceptance with a slightly darker way of thinking of life. Like, we're okay listening to hard rock music. We're okay reading Shakespeare and talking about Edgar Allan Poe. So there is, to an extent, if you're in that group, at least a little bit more accepting of the dark side, but not not violent. <laughs> it was just 
teenage kids, hey, did you see the new Nine Inch Nails music video? Did you play the new video game? Did you see Natural Born Killer? Uh, music was big. Um, sounds silly, but X-Files, we would watch the X-Files at our friend Zach's house. Um, I knew some of the boys were into guns, but every boy in Colorado, not every boy, but you know, it's common. We had different groups in our high school, and I would say the cowboys and the rednecks were more into guns than I ever noticed the goths were. You know, we were comfortable. Our dads all had guns. Can you share about the day of the shooting and how that day was for you? For us, it was just another day, you know, and I was a period away from my lunch break. And I don't know if I had any big plans for that day. I was in class. Our classrooms were divided by subject. So you had like science area, math area, and I was close to the stairs on the second floor we heard something like pop, pop, pop. and we thought it was a senior prank because it was near the end of the school year and there's always that kind of whisper about what the seniors are gonna do as they're praying and so initially none of us were scared a teacher ran in and said someone's shooting down get down and i remember uh, my teacher she gets under her desk and and it's like crying and it really scared all of us are under our desks and we're like do we stay do we run out what do we do it's just a huge not knowing and having to hear what's going on and your imagination is just going crazy you know uh, a male teacher ran in um said we need to get you out of here follow me stay low so we did exactly that and when we all got out of the building we ran to a schoolmate's house that was kind of across the street, not knowing anything that's going on, chaos. And so we all kind of sat in front of the TV at her house as a group. And we're like, we need, do we call our parents? So, you know, they're going to panic. What's going on? We start seeing the news coming out with sometimes facts and sometimes theories about what was going on. They falsely arrest one of the trench mafia guys ruin his name, say he's responsible, he's part of this, and he never was, and so poor Chris had to deal with that. But it was a lot of not knowing what the heck is going on. You, you know, call your friends, make sure everyone's okay. You're trying to see if everyone in your friend group, because you don't know who was killed yet. You were trying to narrow it down, see if your friends are okay. Um, I don't remember how I got home. I really don't. My mom said for days afterwards I was I was a walking zombie. So I really don't remember. I think I ran ran home or got a ride home or something. They said for a while that it was Chris guy, who I said turned out to be totally innocent. But for a while we thought it was him. And people that saw anyone in a trench coat was one of the shooters. So they were just throwing out names. I know later down the line when I found out it was Ellen. Could have knocked me over with a feather. He was quiet, goofy. Show me personally any signs of violence or unhappiness or um, the need for revenge or repercussion from bullying. So that that was a shock to hear he was involved. I went to the funeral of a guy named Greg Barnes. 
He wasn't initially killed, but he had taken the burden on himself. It was hard for all of us to process, and I think he would be a good listening ear to a lot of people going through this, and he couldn't get any more, so he he hung himself shortly after the shooting. So I, I went to his funeral, but I don't know why I didn't want to go to any of the funerals. It was just so much at, at one time that my mom described me as a zombie. I just kind of walked around not knowing what's going on. Uh, I remember all my relatives calling, hanging out with friends, or went to church. We had such an outreach of support letters from kids around the world that a lot of our classes were responding with inky notes to these kids, you know, like these fifth graders in Canada that sewed us little hearts or these eighth graders in Baltimore that put together, you know, little we support you or something. It was a lot of writing inky notes. I don't remember getting a lot of schoolwork. Uh, it was a lot of um, experts being brought in, therapists, that if you wanted to talk to someone, you could talk to someone. They teach you that you need to get back into daily life when a tragedy happens. And so being around my friends and going to school, I think, helped us. But there was some conflict, rumors going around, and it was hard for us who were associated with the shooters. They actually made it against the rules to wear a trench coat. And then there was this rumor that's still on the internet that Dylan wrote a love letter to me. And I never really asked them if they thought it was true. Like, people that knew him better than me, did they think that was accurate? I don't know. Maybe I don't want to know the truth. In my mind, it wasn't written about me. But the media, they have a job to do. They're selling the story. At the end of the day, it's about money. And they jump to conclusions so quickly with Columbine. And a lot of them use it for an agenda, an anti-gun agenda, which kind of hurts because you're like, I'm not an agenda. I'm a person. But... I think that's just the nature of the beast. Then Marilyn Manson making these comments, you know, calling us crybabies, teachers or parents or someone blamed him for putting ideas in children's minds. And instead of ignoring them, his, his idea was to get back and insult us. And so that hurt. And at that moment, I stopped supporting Marilyn Manson. I haven't listened to his songs since. So it just, it's, it's weird to hear everybody else talking about something that's so personal to you. And did that judgmental atmosphere last your entire high school career? Oh, and then some. I get these harassing messages from perfect strangers, emails yes. on my social media from random people around the world, teenagers that were never even born at that time, adults. Sometimes it's as simple as, hey, are you that Marla? Is this true? Did he write this about you? Did you do this? Did he do that? And other times it's, it's uh, straight up. F you. I've had some really bizarre ones that are like, we worship Eric and Flynn and you know, want to know your part in this so we can worship you too. It, it's very bizarre. A lot of signs went up at local businesses. You know, we support you, support life, Columbine. Uh, there was just a flood of letters and banners and people you knew. It. I absolutely felt like Littleton came together, Denver came together. Colorado. I mean, even the president came to support us. So I, I definitely felt the support and love. Um, the churches were super active with people. Their doors were open. Their counseling was free. 
how did your family deal with the tragedy? How did they help you uh, deal with it? They were great. Yeah, very supportive family. They always have been letters and calls from aunts and uncles and stuff. Um, I was rebelling hard against my faith that time, my politics and all the stuff that I'd been raised. But I think that's what got me into the whole punk gothic thing in the first place. And, you know, eventually you just got to make up your own mind what you actually believe. And and now I am a solid Christian. Can't imagine life without him, you know. And it's, it's a, a, a warm hug that you can't explain when you need it. It's knowing that that everything's going to work out in the end and that there's no challenge in front of you that you, you can't handle. So, um, it brought me back to, to Jesus. I remember going into the church and seeing my friends and, and hugging them. Well, that was, it was, that was a, a time that I think I started circling back to my faith. And, you know, I've, I run into a couple people that are going through tragedies in their life or have survived horrible things. There was a, a girl in Thailand when I was there. She told me that she was suicidal and, and I didn't know what to say. And it's a hard situation because all like, yeah, I've been through a shooting. I've had things happen and I wish I could more than just give you a hug and tell you that time heals. I know it sounds insensitive, but when you go back to the regular life, eventually time does heal. I mean, don't oh, let yourself be alone. Don't be afraid to talk about it. Be around people who will listen and legitimately love you. But there are stages of grieving. So I think if you're trying to help someone, I would maybe familiarize yourself with the different stages of grieving and know that the person's going to go through the stages the way that they're going to go through it, which is unique. But to be aware of those stages would be helpful. Because at some point, the person's going to want to cry on your shoulder. At another point, they're going to want to shut down and not talk to you, talk about it and just go back to normal life. And you need to be able to, instead of every day, how are you feeling now? How are you feeling? Let them dictate. Now I'm ready to just go to work and maybe not think about it today. Uh, and so just support them as they walk through those stages. Years later in college, I reconnected with one guy who was right in the midst of it. And asked him if he had any idea and he had no idea and he was probably Dylan's best friend and he had no idea that, that any of this was going on uh, that they were plotting this that they would meet after school and plot this and these graphic videos and, and this guy had no idea Eric I don't remember a lot because I said we didn't have corresponding classes off free time I guess so I didn't hang out with him a lot I knew that he was in our group we had mutual friends. He had a confidence to him. I remember noticing outgoing. Dylan's really the one I knew more. He was too shy to ask me to advance, so we went in a group. Uh, I don't want to say double date. You're in high school. It's more casual than that. But um, but even when we were supposed to be at this dance together, I think we barely said two words to each other. We probably just nervously stood next to each other. Uh <laughs> I remember he was really sweet and shy. Like, he was really tall. Yeah, I, just, I don't remember him being as confident as Eric ever was, you know. But he was a nice kid. <laughs> I never knew that they shot these videos where they were pretending to be badasses with guns or threatening bullies. Or, I, I never 
saw or heard of any of that. It didn't surprise me when I heard that Eric was brain and Colin was the follower, just because I knew Dylan being so shy and having that sort of awkward all teenage boyness about him. I don't, I don't know why Dylan did it. It didn't seem in line with who he was. It wasn't the Dylan I knew. I guess I don't know what to chalk it up to. Was he really that angry inside? Was he was it depression? Was it a teenager being a teenager being talked into something by a person who really did have huge mental issues? Apparently, I mean, Eric really was a sociopath, and we throw that term around, but I think he really was diagnosed as that. And he didn't feel sympathy, from what I understand later, hearing stories, you know, and stuff. But Dylan, why? <laughs> You're, you're a good kid, man. Like, why? Why did you do this? I think for Eric, it was a matter of time. And I really don't know why Dylan got involved. I don't hold the parents responsible. I know that a teenager is going to do what a teenager wants to do. And I remember all the shit I put my parents through. I mean, I was the first one to give my younger brother a drug. <laughs> okay. I'm not proud of that. But I don't hold the parents responsible. I really don't. In fact, I sympathize. I feel bad for the situation they're put in. Yeah, it's not their fault. Well, I remember what it's like to be a teenager. Your parents can't tell you what to do. I bought a motorcycle when I was 16 and my parents absolutely forbid it. And I still bought one and I kept it at my friend's house for secret. Like your teenager is going to do what a teenager wants to do. And uh, you think your parents were good parents and did a good job uh, raising their kids? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Don't tell them. No one them getting big heads. But you know, they were <laughs> they were absolutely loving, hardworking people. They emotionally supported my brother and I. They asked me this years ago if my brother and I had any complaints or felt like we were missing because um, finances were a little tight for us. And that my brother and I like we were tight on money. Like we had no idea. We never needed for anything. We were not spoiled and didn't have big fancy Christmases, but we just never felt lacking. For me, when I went through my worst rebellion, my parents didn't force me to do anything. They didn't force me to go to church. They let me do my thing. Let me do my rebelling. Let me run away, live with drag queens and stuff. But I needed to lose my faith and then find it on my own. So I can only speak my experience. What helped me was me deciding I'm in love with Jesus. I, I can't speak for anyone else. <laughs> oh, and there's a silly thing. After you survive something like this, they call it survivor's guilt. And it's a weird thing because you don't want to die by any means. I've never once been suicidal in my life, but you kind of feel guilty for living. And why did the others die and not me? And one of my friends was one of the guys who was spared. And when we met for coffee, when we both lived in Los Angeles a few years ago, it still haunts him because he was in the parking lot when they were walking in to start their massacre and they told him go you need to get out of here and that's something that's haunted him all this time i'm not a violent person but i would have dreamed for years that i was able to stop them that i interceded and then ran in the cafeteria and shot them first before they could shoot anyone and i had that dream for years <laughs> i don't think anything i could have done would have changed what he was feeling because i never saw the sign Yes. I never knew that that's what he was thinking. So I don't know if the love letter was about me or if he had been more bold at the dance and we had talked more. Thank God I've never had depression or suicidal thoughts or I've never battled 
any mental illness and I, I sympathize for those who do because in my mind I feel having a mental illness is your brain rebelling against you telling you you're not good enough you're not smart enough you're not pretty enough why are you even alive you're hurting the people you love you're draining them and you know so I, I can't imagine having that, that nagging voice when I come to Colorado I meet with a couple of my close friends childhood friends that experienced it as well and we'll post sometimes you know, here's Daniel Mauser or something, you know, but, um, we don't dwell on it. It's there. We'll send each other on April 20th a text like, hey, love you. Just want you to know that, you know, but I think all of us live our life. Uh, with the 20th year anniversary, so I came back to Colorado for that, met up with two of my childhood friends that we still talk, we're still close, uh, and they still live here. We all went to the 20th anniversary and they were releasing doves. They would read out someone's name, one of the victim's name, and then they would release a dove. And when they said Daniel Mauser, they released the dove. It flew right over us. And we just held each other and cried. Thanks, Mara. Thanks for sharing. You go about your life and then someone brings it up or something comes up and you think you're okay 24 years later. Still, wow. It used to be that when I started a friendship or a relationship with someone, I was like, hey, I need to tell you something about me. You need to have a conversation. I want you to know that I'm a survivor of this. And if you do ever Google my name, there's been some horrible things said about me. I want you to know I didn't sympathize with the shooting, blah, 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 you know, the whole thing. And it's been a long time since I've had that conversation with someone. Every once in a while, a coworker will find out, will Google me or something will happen. But I moved so much around this beautiful country, you know, everywhere from D.C. to L.A. And it doesn't always catch up with me. And it stopped surprising me that I would continue to get these social media inquiries and harassments from perfect strangers at night. But it doesn't define me. Um, I love my life and I love my accomplishments as a sommelier and my friends and my travels and trying to do good in this world. I picked an industry that you're in because you're passionate about, you know, uh, wine and whiskey and alcohol. It's something that you are excited about. You want to learn about. It's so close to food and farming and history and culture. And so it's, it's multifaceted and the people that you're sharing this with are equally as excited and it's taken me around the world. I mean, I got a, a beverage director, Somalia gig in the middle of Alaska to Venice Beach, California. So it's, it's taken me around the world. I'm happy with the way things are. And I tried to make going on a mission trip with the church a yearly thing. And so Romania has been really gracious to the Ukrainian refugees, but it's pulling out a lot of their resources and they're struggling now. So uh, right now we're fundraising to go over there and to be able to give the refugees clean water and, and clothes and, and help. You get addicted to helping people seeing these miracles uh, these tragedies, unfortunately, is what happens when evil enters our world. And just know that there's a bigger force out there, that love is bigger. And if you know that and you know that you'll get over what happened in, a, in your own way in time, and you'll, it will get better. Maybe not get over it. I don't know if any of us will ever get over it. But be able to live a normal, happy life, it is possible. And you can't see it when you're in the thick of it. But go the opposite. Right? Go go so far into love that it irritates evil, that it, it pisses it off, that it lets it know it, it didn't win, and that you won, the good one.
Thank you so much for listening to Columbine, them, and you, and me, and everybody. Take care, and you'll be hearing from us again very soon.